This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. My name is Eve Massingham, and I am a Senior Research Fellow in the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland. Today, we are going to be talking about businesses with operations in conflict-affected areas and respect for the laws of war. I'm delighted to be joined by Fove Kanadi and Jonathan Kolib. Fove is a legal advisor in the International Humanitarian Law Program of Australian Red Cross, where she is responsible for the organisation's engagement with corporate actors and academic circles. Fove was recently named one of Pro Bono Australia's Impact Award winners for her work in ensuring Australian businesses understand their responsibilities under the laws of war and play their part in creating better humanitarian outcomes for communities experiencing war. Dr. Jonathan Kolib is a senior lecturer in law at RMIT University, where he is the Peace and Conflict Theme Lead at RMIT's Business and Human Rights Centre. Jonathan's research and teaching interests focus on global governance issues, including projects on the legal protections of children in armed conflict and the human rights obligations of transnational corporations, in particular in conflict-affected areas. Jonathan is also an academic advisory member on the Victorian Australian Red Cross International Humanitarian Law Committee. Welcome to the show, Fove and Jonathan, and congratulations on the great work that you have been doing in this space. Thanks for having us, Eve. Yeah, thank you. So perhaps we can start with Fove then. Now, the Red Cross has obviously had a really long history of an interest in ensuring that all of those operating in conflict zones have a good understanding of the laws of war. I know from my own experience uh, that Red Cross have engaged with groups such as mining companies and private security companies on the topic of the law of war. So can you tell us a little bit about this specific project and how it's taking the conversation forward and building on this work? Yes, sure. So we have been really lucky um, and grateful to have had Jonathan's, but sort of RMIT University's uh, support throughout the work that we've been doing over the last four years. Um, you're right, Eve. I think uh, it's important to mention up front that the Red Cross, the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement holds this, you know, important and unique position in international law uh, when it comes to respect and ensuring respect for IHL, international humanitarian law. Um, and Australian Red Cross as a national society is part of this movement and, and we provide a range of services to uh, the Australian authorities as auxiliaries um, and this includes educating people about international humanitarian law. Traditionally, yes, uh, those that we've spoken to about these laws tend to be, you know, your traditional actors in the space, the Australian Defence Force, um, certainly humanitarian um, legal circles uh, and also academic circles and students throughout the country. Uh, and corporate Australia was much less considered in some of these approaches that we had. And uh, we wanted to try to find a way to embed some of the work that we were doing in those circles a little more closely. So Jonathan often likes to recall that Henri Dunant, the founder of, um, who we like to consider as the founder of Red Cross, was a businessman. 
Uh, and so he came to me, I think maybe four years ago, four and a half years ago now, uh, to talk about the ways in which Australian Red Cross could engage Australian businesses. Uh, and we really set out to firstly just understand the extent to which the private sector understood and applied international humanitarian law, if at all. We knew that the business and human rights agenda was already quite widely discussed and, and um, broadly accepted, uh, but this tended not to include IHL in any sort of great depth. Uh, so this really kicked off a 12-month consultation period throughout 2018. We met with a range of interested parties, uh, certainly businesses and sort of peak bodies and regulatory bodies, but also practitioners and ac academics, um, lawyers and, and in-house counsel and professional services firms as well. We did decide to focus our energies quite early on on the extractives industry. Uh, we found that companies energy and resources companies were more often than not the actors that were operating in these conflict spaces. Uh, and so we tried to focus in on some of the um, operations and practices and policies that they had uh, and really used our findings to understand but also shape a response to what uh, we perceived to be a gap um, in IHL in the industry. So the project is... Um, been ongoing for the past four years, where we're also con continuing to consider the ways in which we can apply some of this work and knowledge to other sectors. It seems that um, some of that sort of attention to this issue has become quite prevalent in relation to um, the war in, in Ukraine. And we have seen the international community and, and, and the media in particular playing some attention to the role of companies in relation to conflict because of the events um, in, in Ukraine this year. Do you think that there is perhaps a growing awareness among companies, perhaps even beyond sort of the, the mining and the extractive industry sector, that they do need to pay attention to this topic because of current events? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been really interesting to watch the past couple of months play out from a private sector point of view. Um, you know, of course, we're watching this horrific situation play out in Ukraine and, um, you know, there's, there's probably another time and place for the discussions, um, you know, that sit in that space. But, yeah, I think you're right, Eve. So I think this situation has really galvanised the private sector to think much more deeply about what their actions and responsibilities are in conflict zones beyond what they're already familiar with, uh, certainly not, not only restricted to their immediate presence and operations, but increasingly what financial support um, is being offered, investments, responsible investments and, and divestments, supply chains. I mean, I think within a month we saw more than 300 companies halt their operations in Ukraine and Russia, which is a much more rapid response than has been the case in other conflicts. Um, but the fact is that companies do face heightened risks uh, and challenges when they operate in armed conflict contexts, and the impact of this is really quickly materialising. Uh, and the, the Russian-Ukraine um, context, I think partly due to the very strict economic sanctions on Russia and companies' responses to this, but also the spotlight that it places on what companies, company money supports, either wittingly or unwittingly, um, is a really important consideration as well. Uh, we've certainly seen 
companies being called on in a really broad way, sort of, you know, from the United Nations through to uh, consumers and social media movements to really start to answer questions about what human rights due diligence in these sorts of contexts currently looks like and should look like. Uh, companies are being called on to take a more conflict-sensitive approach, to think about exposure to complicity in war crimes, particularly for those with a more direct connection to Russian military efforts, you know, oil and gas sectors, surveillance, even manufacturers of manufacturers of uniforms. And then there's others that are thinking about their impact, probably in a no less complex but different way. So, for instance, pharmaceutical brands and food manufacturers who provide medicines and, and other essential goods to uh, Russian civilians, they're probably thinking about what the implications of withdrawing their operations entirely will have on the civilian population. So I think ultimately what we're really seeing is businesses starting to investigate what heightened or enhanced human rights due diligence in a conflict zone actually means. So we're clearly talking about a whole range of different businesses and and private actors in these conflict situations. Perhaps um, if we can turn to you, Jonathan, it's it's the point now to take a step back and and look at what is the actual international humanitarian law that might apply to these businesses and private actors? What are the relevant rules? What are we talking about here? Yeah, thanks, Eve. Um, I just want to note that Fove did indeed steal my thunder. It was Henri Dunant was a businessman. Uh, Henri Dunant, uh, of the founder of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Um, so the, the roots run, run deep between business and international humanitarian law. Um, I think the movement has forgotten that for, for the better part of their history. Um, but it's useful. Um, to, to turn our attention to it. Um, well, the fact is that unlike, and again, I think this is a key message that we have to the corporate community, unlike international human rights law, which is directed at states and states' obligations to respect and protect human rights, international human, humanitarian law applies to all actors, be you a state actor or a non-state actor, like a, a militia, um, a, an armed group, or a business, and, and certainly the individuals, the, the personnel within a business, fall within the scope of international humanitarian law. Uh, what is IHL? Um, and again, um, forgive me for the, um, this might be um, baby steps for um, for the audience of this podcast, but it, essentially in a nutshell, uh, international humanitarian law is designed to limit suffering in wartime. Uh, it is designed to inject some humanity into uh, humanity's darkest hour. IHL is designed to um, for all parties to a conflict, uh, all people engaged in armed conflict or uh, impacted and, uh, and involved in an armed conflict to treat each other with a modicum of humanity uh, and respect based on that humanity and that limit the means and methods of warfare. So certain weapons, are banned, certain practices such as torture uh, are banned, and IHL lays down some minimum standards of of respect for one another, that all parties to a conflict, be you, again, a state or a non-state actor like a business, uh, should be adhering to. I think it also, though, your question, uh, and we can get deeper into some relevant areas of of international humanitarian law provisions that might be specifically relevant to businesses. I think it's also worthwhile to take a moment 
and, and take off our law and our legal compliance hat in a way. And I think Fove has already sort of alluded to this, that the, the conversation around business and IHL sort of falls within the larger conversation that is held in, in many boardrooms about businesses' social responsibilities and, and businesses' engagement and interaction with society. It's not just about compliance with a certain set of IHL rules in this case. Um, IHL, as I was just trying to indicate, sort of lays down sort of an ethical standard as well as a legal standard of conduct. And, uh, and therefore, beyond compliance, IHL provides some rules that are really relevant to those companies that are trying to be responsible businesses in conflict zones. You did mention sort of at, at the outset, like it's a little bit different to, to human rights here, but perhaps, you know, the average person who hasn't thought much maybe about the difference between IHL and, and human rights, I mean, aren't a lot of the obligations that we're talking about that apply to companies and individuals here existing obligations because of human rights anyway? I mean, what what value or what extra aspect does the, the international humanitarian law framework add apart from the fact that it's applicable in times of conflict? Oh, where do we begin? Uh, well, for starters, it's worthwhile to point out that human rights law can be suspended in times of war. Uh, it can be derogated from, it can be suspended, the obligations. Um, so wh- whereas IHL, International Humanitarian Law, is a body of law designed specifically for and only for conflict situations. Uh, it is tailored to uh, regulate behaviour in those specific uh, special times and, and situations of armed conflict. Uh, the other key distinction, I think, uh, I think you were getting at key dis- uh, distinctions. Uh, I think there are differences in practice. Uh, uh, the example that I like to provide, international human rights law, right to life, huge human right, kind of fundamental to all other of the human rights that we can think of. Um, and yet IHL actually permits arguably facilitates the taking of life. It places limits and parameters on how killing can be done in warfare, but its its starting point is that killing and injuring and harming one's enemy will actually occur. It, It takes as a given that there is a situation of armed conflict. If I could jump in as well, Eve, I think there are some unique elements to international humanitarian law that aren't necessarily covered in the same level of detail or in the same way as human rights law. If you think about things like direct participation in hostilities, for instance, particularly when we've been looking at the contracting of security personnel by extractives companies, uh, this element, this, you know, this notion of um, not just responsibility, but also protection for businesses tends to be overlooked. Uh, And so we have rules around civilian status and the protection of um, even security personnel that are hired to to protect um, certain assets um, that's not necessarily included in some of the human rights and security training that's offered or, or, or rolled out by some of these companies. It, you know, more often than not, these personnel are um, often armed um, and rely on right to use self-defence to fulfil their contractual obligations, uh, and that should come with the associated training uh, in rules of engagement, in in direct participation in hostilities, in international humanitarian law. So so they understand the implications for their civilian status and also the status of of the property that 
and the assets that they're hired to protect if they choose to engage in surrounding hostilities. And maybe a mini plug, we've just recently created uh, or revised, I suppose, our security armed conflict and IHL training for mining companies, uh, particularly those mining companies that hire and contract security providers. uh, And we're looking to roll this out and launch it within the next couple of months. So it's designed to be a package that can be added quite easily to existing human rights and security training packages that these companies already have. I think this raises the discussion about human rights and and IHL and and businesses, raises some really interesting questions around sort of, you know, whose responsibility is it ultimately? Um, And of course, you know, our listeners who are familiar with international humanitarian law will be familiar with the idea behind um, the obligation to respect and ensure respect for international humanitarian law and the idea that that obligation is one that's on states. But we're increasingly seeing um, an acceptance um, of, you know, the power of of, of corporations and businesses and an understanding that states and businesses have to work together. Um, States have obligations that go to their regulation and their oversight of industries, um, but but industries also also have roles as well. I'm thinking, for example, of um, sort of in the African Union context, um, in the protection of internally displaced peoples, there's been this real recognition that sort of development projects and and other parts of of the community, not just state or non-state actor obligations, um, exist. Are you seeing sort of examples of where states are starting to better regulate or provide this better oversight of particular industries in a way that is going to ensure better respect for IHL? Uh, I'm not sure if uh, I would go that far, perhaps. Um, I think certainly in the human rights space, there's a lot of that that has been happening. Yeah, drawing drawing out Common Article 1, I think, is a really interesting uh, idea, Eve. So this, put incredibly simply, perhaps too simply, um, this is really this is really about states having an obligation to comply with IHL and ensure that those in their jurisdiction also comply with IHL, uh, and well, and to take steps whether they're a party to a conflict or not to ensure that others also also comply with IHL. If we look at this through a private sector lens, I think it could be argued that states then have an obligation to ensure that any corporate actor, whether that actor is of their own nationality operating or headquartered in its territory or contracted by that state should be complying with IHL as well. I think to some extent, probably what is worth noting at the moment in in where things are up to is is probably the Montreux document. So finalised in 2008, uh, the documents really reaffirmed the obligations that states have specifically in relation to the actions and behaviours of private military and security companies, though it's not legally binding. But I think what we would argue is that it shouldn't be limited to private military and security companies. All states, home, territorial and and contracting states, should really be looking at the activities of any businesses operating in situations of armed conflict and ensuring that these entities not only understand but but respect IHL as well. Can can, can I just add a little fove on, on that and if, uh, permit me to to add a little bit on that governance angle. Again, fove alluded to the notion that perhaps there's a bit more work 
going on in human rights rather than IHL in terms of engaging businesses. And I think that's right. 2011 uh, saw the unanimous passage in the UN Human Rights Council of what's called the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights that actually draws attention to business conduct and business operations in conflict-affected areas as being where the most egregious human rights violations occur and that special attention should be paid by businesses and by governments, by countries, in regulating companies and their conduct in those situations and call for greater respect for IHL, I should add. And, and since then, we've also seen, I wouldn't sort of say a slew, we've seen a, a pitter-patter of, of hard laws in various jurisdictions around human rights due diligence where companies are being mandated by uh, certain countries, France in particular, to, to go down, not just in their op- investigate their operations, but go down their entire supply chain, back to the mine, back to the farm, and investigate if there are instances of uh, human rights abuses, and then what are they doing to address those. Uh, in Australia, for example, the uh, in 2018, uh, we passed a version of a human rights due diligence law called the Australian Modern Slavery Act, and that does require uh, companies uh, earning over $100 million in, in consolidated revenue annually in Australia to do that whole entire supply chain human rights investigation around modern slavery. Uh, and what's important is that modern slavery are some of those uh, human rights abuses that are very much present and connected to instances of armed conflict. So, for example, child labour in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, very closely linked, unfortunately, to um, to that the ongoing conflicts in, in that country. Uh, that That is captured by the Australian Modern Slavery Act. What we could see more of, for putting on our IHL hats, is more explicit language that when companies do do these, um, are required by law to do these human rights due diligence exercises, that they also investigate um, compliance with IHL standards. I think you're definitely uh, coming coming to to this question through through your last answer. But I guess you know a, a big question for us is is why why is this important? What sorts of consequences are we talking about for those um, both who are impacted by the conflict um, from sort of a humanitarian perspective, but also of course for the for the private actors? I mean, presumably a little bit of the sales pitch of the work that that you and Fro have been doing is well, think about this, otherwise you're going to have consequences um, down the track. It's, it's better to be prepared and, and understand this before you go out and, and engage in your business because you could have, have these consequences. What, what, what is the sort of pitch to the private actors? Oh, um, I feel like I'm getting the hard ones. Um, <laughs> no. Um, so it's, it, can I just uh, uh, preface my remarks by saying, it's really interesting Eve, that you ask this, and because in the, again in the broader business and human rights space, there are some uh, academics, activists that um, are, now, are now railing against this this need for a business case for human rights. Um, the, the case for compliance with IHL and human rights is just clear on its face. Um, these are fundamental human values. Uh, universal values that should be respected, full stop. 
I'm kind of with you though, Eve. I, I, I still, especially in the in the in the domain of IHL, we still need to sell the value and utility of IHL awareness with the Australian corporate community. I mean, Fove alluded earlier in the introduction to, I think she was, um, well, perhaps generous uh, in, in terms of the, the knowledge of IHL in, uh, amongst the Australian corporate community and the global corporate community that we've uh, engaged with over the years. It, it's none to minimal. Uh, the companies that seem to to know something about IHL are those that have unfortunately been impacted and have felt some of the adverse consequences of failing to comply with IHL. And we can name names if you wish. But so part of the business case, um, okay, so how about reputational risk, uh, risk to litigate uh, of litigation, risk of prosecution, jail time, uh, for your executives, for your leaderships, for your personnel, but also, uh, and again, Fove alluded to this earlier, IHL provides companies protection in, in war zones. So part of the selling point is that it's not just um, take, take, take. IHL is not just demanding things of, of companies in conflict zones. It also provides some really valuable protections if they uh, maintain their civilian status, obviously. In those conflict zones, they are afforded all the protections that are afforded to civilians and civilian assets in conflict zones under IHL. You mentioned the the, the prospect of prosecutions, and obviously that is something that uh, that gets people uh, listening. Um, but certainly, the idea of of prosecutions in this space isn't an entirely entirely new one. There is some history of corporate liability for international humanitarian law violations. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, but we should start with the ones that are currently ongoing because they're the most uh, relevant. Uh, London Oil, um, a Swedish oil company, it's changed its name. It's now London Energy. It was London Oil, then London Petroleum, and now London Energy. That is, uh, my Swedish friends tell me, uh, the equivalent of sort of like BHP is to Australia, London is to Sweden. Um, their uh, former uh, chairman of the board and, and CEO are currently being prosecuted for war crimes by a Swedish court uh, currently in 2022. Uh, so that's worthwhile to note that it's not just a historical anomaly uh, that we'll get to um, that says that corporates can actually be held legally accountable in courts of law. Um, for, for war crimes and for IHL violations. There's actually been a few over the years, uh, but um, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll let Fo speak to a few of her favourites, but uh, I, let me go to the big one. Uh, 70 odd years ago, Nuremberg, uh, you know, the high point of international uh, criminal law, the high point of holding entities and people accountable for violations, the gravest violations, arguably, of international law the world has ever seen, right? World War II, the Holocaust. It wasn't just German political leaders. Uh, it wasn't just German military leaders that were held accountable at Nuremberg. There was actually um, over um, four, around four dozen German corporate leaders that were also prosecuted in the Nuremberg trials after post-World War II, with about half found guilty of various war crimes and held accountable, sentenced to prison terms. I think that also raises the unique um, uh, crime of pillage 
in this context as well, um, coming out of Nuremberg. And this isn't something that's replicated in human rights law. It's it's unique to um, conflict contexts. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the, the theft of um, property and, and natural resources and, and something that companies ought to be aware of now as well. Uh, I think uh, some of the other examples go more to the aiding and abetting and, and sort of financially supporting or supporting the operations of uh, acts that have horrific consequences for civilian populations. Uh, we're not just talking about the direct actions of uh, war criminals. We're talking about the orders or um, turning a blind eye to or the financial support of or otherwise by directors, by CEOs, by chair people of the boards of these companies um, as being potentially being liable in those situations as well. Again, can we can we mention names? I don't know, Eve. Um, I guess you'll be held liable, not us, right? Um, uh, but right now, alleged, we'll just uh, we'll call it an investment. Yeah, um, there is the one of the largest banks on the planet are being investigated for financing of war crimes, not the actual commission of war crimes. And again, so the impact of and the relevance of IHL is not just for companies that have a mine or a factory or operations in a conflict zone. Uh, if you're in any way connected through your supply chain, through your customers, through your investments in a conflict zone, it behooves you to be aware of international humanitarian law. That's a French, a French bank called BNP Paribas. Um, they're being investigated currently by French prosecutors for uh, alleged complicity in war crimes in Sudan. You've obviously mentioned CEOs and business leaders a, a few times uh, in those uh, responses, but it seems a, a nice segue to the fact that you're you're really in the work that you guys have been doing and the fabulous education work that you've been doing. Your initiative isn't, isn't necessarily about the current CEOs, it's about the future um, CEOs. So perhaps, um, Fari, you can talk to us a little bit more about this engagement with future leaders. Yes, absolutely. So we have this really exciting new initiative that uh, Jonathan and I um, weren't the only creative brains behind, but a lovely partnership between Australian Red Cross and RMIT University. A new interactive immersive module called War, Law and Business. And this was really our way of trying to respond to a question that we at least kept asking ourselves, which was, how do we teach the laws of war to the next generation of corporate leaders and decision makers? So the future engineer working on the latest weapons designs, a future mining CEO that's considering investment in cobalt or other natural resources, um, how do we build up an education in IHL among some of these people. So we developed this sort of simulated uh, scenario activity to inspire that next generation. As I said, it's interactive, so it's quite different to traditional e-learning modules. I don't think either of us even like calling it an e-learning module because we feel it's, um, it's worth distinguishing it from those. But the idea is really that you sit down and put on the shoes of a CEO of a global extractives company's company and then have to learn and apply the fundamental rules of IHL to try to navigate your way out of quite a tricky ethical and legal dilemma in a conflict-related crisis. And yeah, you're right, Eve, certainly this was designed with future business leaders, so business students and particularly 
well, undergrad and, and also postgrad business students in mind, but it's really, I think of, it would be of interest to anyone that has a general interest in IHL, um, but also pr probably more specifically law students and some of those that are already working in industry and early career roles, um, business managers and, and sustainability and human rights officers, those sorts of people. So yeah, something that we're really excited about. It's it's free and it's online and, and you can sort of sit down and, and play it as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. And we will include a link uh, to it in, in the show notes for, for the podcast. Perhaps though, Taking into account the fact that not everybody um, will necessarily do it, can you can you both give us your key takeaway for businesses and business leaders of tomorrow? What is it that you really want them to know um, about this topic of, of businesses in operating in conflict zones? Good question. So I think one of the key messages we really try to leave businesses with is that businesses aren't neutral actors in conflict. They have a reach and an influence and a presence that all has the potential to have uh, both positive and negative impacts on communities that ex are experiencing the consequences of armed conflict. So it really is time to think beyond human rights and human rights law and to look to some of the specialist laws that do apply in conflict. I think applying a conflict, you know, we're hearing these words um, conflict-sensitive approaches, and, and this is this is particularly um, common in the last few years in the human rights business and human rights agenda. But to adopt a conflict-sensitive approach in business is really to understand the full spectrum of corporate risk and responsibility in conflict environments, and this absolutely needs to include a genuine consideration and implementation of IHL. Jonathan, did you want to add your takeaway? Uh, yeah, I'll just associate myself with those. I thought that was great. Um, let me sum up with, with my two takeaways, two sentences. Uh, one for the business community, um, don't forget the Geneva Conventions. Uh, that is an absolute shameless plug. Yes, it's the, the, the title of, a, of an article that I published uh, in the Australian Journal of Human Rights uh, on this topic. Uh, but don't forget the Geneva Conventions to the businesses, uh, to the business communities is, is our take-home message. But also for the, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are more in, of the IHL community. So could I extend a plea? Don't forget businesses. Just like Fo said, it, businesses are there. Whether you like it or not, whether you want to have a, a, a blinkered, uh, or narrow view of the um, of the relevance of IHL to traditional military actors, to states. The fact is that companies are there on the ground in conflict zones, huge social, economic, political um, influences down there. It behooves us if we want an effective, useful, valuable IHL in the real world to engage those categories of actors as well. Don't forget business. So we've clearly got um, a great uh, article and also the, the link uh, to the scenario training, um, but are there any other key recommended readings that you would leave our listeners with? We have a couple. Yes. So uh, probably start with our practical guide doing responsible business in armed conflict. 
Uh, it's a very easy introduction to the key principles and rules of IHL uh, and their relevance to corporate actors. Um, we worked with the economic advisor at the ICRC to sort of update their 2006 version of a very similar guide and, and that's what we published a couple of years ago. Um, but if you know a bit about IHL already, perhaps have a look at our seven indicators framework. Uh, so the seven indicators on corporate corporate best practice in IHL and these really outline seven key um, you know points of consideration when it comes to good practice or best practice in IHL by corporate actors. Great. Well, thank you so much, Fove and Jonathan, not just for your, for your time today, but for the work that you've clearly been doing over the last four years on this really interesting project. Um, and we look forward to um, continuing to engage with you and, and hearing where the project goes um, down the track. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Eve. Thank you. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.